Hey, Whiskey Ringers, welcome to a brand new intro. First off, there are still a few bottles of our barrel single barrel rye finished in Armagnac casks, picked in partnership with This Is My Bourbon podcast. Check out the show notes for links to purchase. Second, I am thrilled to announce that I've joined the Bar Cart Co-op. This group of podcasts and shows has a show or multiple for everyone. I'll talk more about them in the mid-roll. Finally, there are still two $25 spots available on Patreon. These are the last two spots that will ever be open on that tier, so if you've been putting it off, grab your spot today. There are also spots available at the $15 a month level if you want to support, but can't quite commit to that $25 tier just yet. There's a spot in supporting for everyone's budget, and I truly thank you all for making this podcast possible. Hey folks, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today we're going back over to Scotland to talk about a uh, distillery that at first glance you might not think that I would be talking about because they don't have a ton of whiskeys at this point. It's more about the, and they're waiting on their single malt for a little bit, get into that later, but we're here to talk about Arbeke Distillery on the east coast of Scotland in the Angus region. And with us to talk about it is John Sterling, one of the brothers and founders of Arbeke. So John, welcome on. Hi, thanks very much, David, um, and to your audience. Delighted to be here. I'm looking forward to this, um, telling you about our story, where we've come from, how we've, where we've got to, and where we're going. I think that's the main thing. So really looking forward to this. Absolutely. So let's start with a, a question that I usually only have to ask um, Scottish distillers or Irish distillers, which is, what does Arbiki mean? Yeah, so Arbiki is our family farm. So it's uh, where um, my uh, predecessors, my my family of fourth generation on the farm. And we originally think it came from, it would have been part Viking and part Scots. So we're on the East Coast. So there's a lot of Viking raiders used to come and, and fight with the Scots. And then, so a lot of people in the East Coast in particular of Scotland have a lot of Viking and, and Scots blood in them. So the name is originally, we believe, Viking. And it's just been with the farm. It's a, basically a place for, for as long as anyone's known it to be. Gotcha, gotcha. And as I said, you've got, well, there there's the family connection to the, land itself which is at your fourth generation so it started around the 1920s um your family's been farming for much longer than that uh, since the 1660s I believe so uh what kind of caused the move over was that part of the clearances yeah no it, it wasn't so um we originally family comes from um the west coast or actually quite close to sterling which is is my last name and we were farmers just outside glasgow really and and, and there um what happened was that in those days milk production was actually doing really well and actually it's a bit similar to maybe how budweiser and chicago and everything came about milk was the 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 thing that made the most money in farming because you were feeding a uh, population such as Glasgow, but there was a realization that actually the, the land around Glasgow wasn't that good. And actually farming in the East coast, where it was much more cereal based was much better. So someone in their wisdom sold up uh, milk production and moved as did quite a lot of other people when they were making money to the East coast and bought up lands in the East coast. And that's proved to be a, a fantastic move because Angus is fertile areas in Scotland. It's a little microclimate and it produces some of the best soils. And that's important now because of our 
growing of all the products we make on the farm for, for our distillery. So ages and ages ago, um, someone had the foresight to, when they were making milk, to move to the East Coast and go into cereal production. And now, unfortunately, milk production is not so good and cereal production is much, much better. Um, there, there was also, I'll tell you a quick story about uh, my mother once traced back our ancestry and she went right back to the 1690s actually slightly earlier and I think she was looking for some royal connection but actually what happened she found that one of our ancestors has actually been uh, hung for being a, a, a cattle thief right so uh, she was slightly disappointed that there's no royal blood in us however when I tell people a cattle thief actually in those days in Highlanders in the Highlands what you did was it was almost like a game. You stole cattle from your next door neighbor. So it wasn't quite as bad as it sounds. Yeah, that sounds like a high risk game, though. If, you know, you, you, it's a game when you're trying to steal them from your neighbors. But if you get caught, you get hanged. That's it's uh, kind of high risk. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's one of the things about Scotland and in particular the Highland and the Highlander. We've always, uh, yeah, we're probably quite high risk people <laughs> over the centuries. So the on the land that you're on now, there's the original. There was an original distillery there, as far as back as we know, is 1794. Um, obviously, given the dates, that wouldn't have been uh, your family distilling there, but it would have been someone distilling there at the site. And uh, the date's important. You've since named the Highland Rye after it. Uh, what have you been able to kind of discover about the site itself and what might have been made there? Yeah, it's it's interesting, and it's actually it's actually important, and and this is why we called it seventeen ninety four to our kind of whole uh, farm field to bottle philosophy that we started from the very start. So we discovered on our family farm or Beaky that there was a distillery here, and we know that it from seventeen ninety four, but actually it was before seventeen ninety four. The reason we know seventeen ninety four is we have it in an ancient map. And it mentions distillery at Urbiki. Now, it's really hard to find records about this time because generally the distilleries or the stills were illegal and there were hidden stills. And if you know about Scottish history and the, 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 the stills, there was a lot of farm-based stills that were illegal stills. So we definitely had that here. But actually to be on a map meant I had some kind of authentication. And then when we looked back and tried to trace it back, we found the original distiller at Inverkeeler, which is a little local village. And there's a headstone to our Beaky distiller. And at that, that stage, what would have been made is, is basically um, in the farm, you'd make whiskey or eau de vie out of barley, wheat, rye, importantly, oats. So anything you are producing on the farm, you then utilize some of that to make your whiskey or, or, or base spirit eau de vie. And therefore, that's what happened here. So not, we know that's what was made. And, and why that's so important for our journey is that's what we try to recreate. We've kind of looked back to look forward. So our distillery is all farm-based. We utilize the same crops in the farm to make our Scotch whiskey. And, and, and that's what we kind of learned from the original distillery, which I can look out the window in my office and, and can see that unfortunately there's no building or blocks there now, but it was too long ago, but we know that's where it was. And you mentioned this a little bit uh, just before, which was that the East Coast and Angus has great soil, great area for cereal production. 
And uh, I've heard you talk in previous interviews, uh, you and your brothers, I should say, because you kind of, um, you guys are good about taking turns in, in interviews to <laughs> max, maximize exposure. Uh, so on where you are overlooking Lunan Bay, you get lots of sunshine, um, not a ton of rain. So, uh, you know, water is sometimes a concern to that point, but it sounds great for crop growing more so than the West Coast, as you were saying. So what, how would you describe your terroir or your yeah. sense of place there? It, it, it's perfect because we've we have always been about terroir and our sense of place and, and and it's been slightly dismissed in the past i think because if you're a really really large distillery and everything that you don't have the same you know uh association with the land and we've been farmers as well so we've always looked after the soil we know the growing conditions and angus in particular and the east coast we are based is is you know it's 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 a microclimate it's one of the driest places in scotland i know People might find that hard to believe Scotland and dry, but it's, you know, we do have to look after water in the summer. We get a, a, a lot of sunlight. And what that does is it affects what we can grow, the varieties we can grow as well. So um, it's been really important in our journey that we know the heritage and the varieties of barley we're growing. We know the flavor profile. We also look after the soils. We're, 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 you know, we're very much into sustainable farming practices, regenerative practices, and everything we do in, in our, our whiskey and other production starts in the field. So and, and we trace everything to two centimeters. We know all inputs, outputs, and it really, anything that, works its way into becoming our scotch whiskey starts with the local environment the soils and the grains we grow so it's fundamental to our whole story and actually to the taste of our whiskey you know i had a, a question later on about this but i think I'll, I'll move it forward which was i saw the the down to two centimeter tracking of certain things what does that look like in practice like are you are putting um, stakes every two centimeters is there an underground kind of web like how do you measure it that way yeah so it's it's it i suppose one of the things as a distillery and as a farm we've always done is we always look back but look back to go forward so we won't necessarily do things that uh when we're looking back going oh this was always done this way and say we must do it we look back for the good things and what happened in farming and agriculture was there used to be a lot smaller or fields, they knew the fields better, and fields tended to be around the particular soils in it. So large-scale farming now is much, much bigger fields, so you have much more diverse fields, much more diverse soils. So in terms of our farming, we utilise GPS. So every tractor has GPS signal on it. Any input we put into the soil, we trace to two centimetres, it gets fed back into computer programmes and mapping systems. So we absolutely know every input that went onto that piece of soil, every output, and at the same time, every few years, we actually soil sample, analyze the soil, analyze it for carbon. So we have a complete map of our, our farming practice down to, with the GPS, it's down to two centimeters. So we can alternate, we can reduce certain things into soil if it's not necessary. So it's really modern, modern farming, practice that allows us then to take that through to our distilling process so taking a step back from there uh when you were on winebow insider last year uh, and i should say uh shout out to winebow to monique and winebow for making this connection because uh, 
they're just fantastic and not gatekeepers at all. You want a connection? Uh, well, here we are. So thank you to them. Uh, so when you were on Winebow Insider last year, you said you and your brothers went back to practices that your father had been using in the 60s and 70s, uh, more attention to the land, things like a seven-year crop rotation, nitrogen fixing as part of the crop rotation. Um, you answered part of this already, but um, just to expand upon it, what else were you able to to use from those older farming practices and what did you find had to be adapted for today? Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because actually when when we start looking at all the kind of farming practices and soil health and the natural environment and look to, you know, do things more sustainably, but, and I say sustainably, it's actually looking to do things better, less waste, you know, just be kind. We try to be kind to the planet. We try to be kind to people, you know, just generally to look at every aspect of, of farming. And therefore, when we when we started looking at things, and, and in particular, rotation so we practice what's known as regenerative farming and that's really caring more about the soil um being kinder to all the our, our natural environments and and when we were looking at that we we practice a seven-year rotation because that's the perfect rotation for us and that just means certain break crops it just makes the soil structure better we looked we noticed that my father which i didn't know at the time had grown peas legumes and part of that was because they're nitrogen fixing and they put natural nitrogen in the soil and it just creates a much better rotation. And the reason I did that is because when we produced our Nadar vodka and gin, which was the first climate positive spirit in the world, that became that because legumes and peas are natural nitrogen fixing and are really important to the environment and soil structure. So that was one part. And then when we're doing this, we also trying to get away from too much uh, fertilizer, too many chemicals going on, and just really modern large farming practice that doesn't really take care of the environment enough. We start then looking at some of the varieties that were growing. And I found my dad's diaries from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And then we looked at the barley varieties, in particular, he was growing. And therefore, we saw certain barley varieties. And then we were looking into barley and, and for the people that are geeks of the barley world um, at the moment in Scotland we have one particular variety that is growing across the distilling um, industry and that's called Laureate or before Laureate was Concerto and now after Laureate you've got something called Sassin Diablo but they're really the same strain they're like cousins or sisters and brothers and therefore they've been grown for yield in the field and yield in the still and therefore we believe and i think it's been proven now that a lot of the flavor profiles were kind of bred out of these earlier heritage varieties just for yield because yield was the most important thing as i said for yield in the field yield in the still and therefore a lot of the flavors were forgotten so we start looking back at these varieties and then we found that some of them the flavor profile is much different the flavors are really really interesting and people have known the famous Macallan of the 70s. It was a, a grain they used was called Golden Promise. Um, and a lot of the 70s were, were much different varieties. So we're actually using uh, the Scottish equivalent of Golden Promise, which is a variety called Tyne. We've got one called Midas. Um, we've got Dacado. So we've looked back at my dad's diaries 
picked heritage varieties that we know grows here because he was growing them for a number of years. So we know they suit the natural environment. And therefore, part of our process now is to use these heirloom or, or heritage varieties to create really interesting flavor in the field for a whiskey. But at the same time, the added advantage is they're actually more sustainable. You, you know, they grow better here. You get less yield. So that is the, the downside. But we are more than happy to give up that reduction in yield for the added benefits of uh, a natural terroir-based uh, barley that grows here, that creates interesting flavours and is uh, more sustainable and better for the soil. So with the with the varieties that you're growing and in, in you're at the, between the Concerto Laureate uh, and the Sassan di Diablo for the new strains, um, it's kind of like when a, when a company, when their patent's about to run out on a medication, they make one slight change and it's a whole new patent. It's basically what they're doing um, decade over decade. But for, as you said, for you guys, you're using specific ones that grow better for you and not necessarily for the yield. And I'm just looking at, at the bottle of the Highland Rye that I have. And this one has um, Concerto malted barley from the field, the Big Moor. And it made me th uh, think for, you know, when, when the distillery idea started coming back for you guys and you were figuring out what the crop rotations would be, what all the inputs would be. Uh, how much testing of each grain did you have to do to figure out, you know, which one would work for you? Or did you happen to have some that were already in place that worked better for you? Yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting question. And, it, and it's actually, and a lot of stuff we do is amazing as such a small privately owned distillery we, we've done. So we've kind of challenged a lot of the, 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 natural or normal thinking and, and and we've challenged challenged ourselves more than anything so when we looked at this and actually when you mentioned the concerto grain so concerto is what we were growing concerto and laurie and sassy future varieties of of uh, our highland rye will be the midas the tines the arcados the reason our initial rye and that didn't go in there is because we had to go back to the seed banks and find the varieties that didn't exist anymore, or they just existed in the seed bank. And we had to spend five years multiplying them up from the seed bank to recreate the varieties. So before we can even utilize that, that's five years of development work with, we did uh, five different varieties because one could always fail. And therefore it was a long process to actually get to a position where we can now utilize grains that were used in the seventies and eighties. So that was, and it was a, and it, when you're that small as well as us, it's not that easy to multiply things up from the seed bank and then carry it on. But we've now got a program in place. So going forward, we will always be about heritage varieties. But, it, you know, it's and, and we had is we weren't going back and just choosing a random grain. And there's a lot of grains out there that are not used anymore because of my dad's diaries. We knew that he'd grown time for 10 years. We knew he'd grown Midas. We'd seen it over the years. And if it wasn't successful here, you would have just seen it like one year or two year maximum in diaries. They were 10, 15 years. So we knew in this, our natural environment, they would grow. So it was just the time taken to multiply up and to go back to that seed bank and, and create recreate you know, the heritage grains. When to to jump to the 
distillery itself. So uh, moving forward from the from the farm, we'll return to the farm for sure. But the distillery itself, when uh, you and your brothers were decided, you know, we're going to build a distillery. We wanted to do the sustainable practices. We wanted to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, where did you look for inspiration and guidance in building them? <laughs> It's a good. It's so uh, we started the build in 2013. So we're relatively new, but I think um, our whole philosophy early on was about let's go back to the way that Scotch whiskey used to be made in Scotland years and years ago, which was farm-based distilling. So you utilised what was on the farm. You utilised the crops, and you created your uh, Scotch whiskey from that. So that's what we wanted to go back to. And, and it, within that farming, once you, we started looking at that, it was also that there was a minimal waste. And this is actually going back to the 60s and 70s. The, the waste element in farming was minimal because, you know, you, you used a draft to feed the cattle and, and then the, the dung from the straw and that came back and you had a real circular economy. And with the way food productions happened in the UK, and I think this is true elsewhere, and, and the rise of the really, really big supermarkets. And without blaming them, it became about how you can produce cheaper and cheaper food. I know because people want cheaper food. The problem with that is when you do that, you make it harder and harder down the chain, the supply chain for people to survive. And the farmer to survive then had to just think about yield. How do we produce yield? How can we basically... what in many ways happened is we became more a disposable society. So, you know, you had so many things coming in, you basically disposed of or burnt. And now when we looked at creating a distiller, it was about, okay, how can we go back to the ways things were done more sustainable? How can we almost recreate the distilling model and have zero waste? How we can, how can we, you know, get more flavor profile, work more with our natural living environment. And, you know, and, and being a farm, we had that complete connection. So I think at the very start, it was, and I think for people that want to, you know, make a change, the ethos is more important than anything. If your ethos is, let's just try and do things better. Let's just try and be kinder to the environment, kinder to so many different things. You can't do everything. So there's certain things we could do that, we could do much better in terms of the planet and be more sustainable, but we can't afford it. So there's a commercial reality as well. And lots of people are at commercial reality, but within that commercial reality, there are small things you can do. And everyone does some things you can create massive change. So our, our philosophy was let's just try and do the best we can and then challenge ourselves and all the stuff we're doing is, can we build this in the most sustainable way? Can we utilize our crops? Can we minimize waste? Can we create the most flavor profile possible? And I think one of the elements that helped us and allowed us to do this, and again, this is what sets us apart from a lot of distilleries is we're private and we're privately owned and, and we don't have any outside investors. And so we have no one telling us, you've got to do this. You've got to make a profit. You've got to, you know, and I'm, I'm not taking away from, people that you know that's tried and tested business models but it allowed us very much to follow our dream of what we wanted to do and just try and do things in the best way possible and and that set 
the stall out when we built the distillery and our whole philosophy since then has followed this kind of trend. So to take that and connect it with not only the uh, historical distillery that was there, but the farming practices and the strains that were being used, plus the ethos that you wanted to impart. Um, the uh, There's a question I have about whether... Oh, man, I just went right out of my head. Wow. Right. So when bringing all that together, we, you know, we know that farmers really un up until pretty recently with, with commercial grain and, and um, commodity grain, as you were saying, in terms of yields and said that they're distilling anywhere in the world, they're distilling what's on the farm. They're distilling what they have left over and what's unsold and unused. So um, while we think of Scottish and Irish whiskey as being mostly barley, that that's more of a, in the last two centuries kind of change. So going back to, to the history of, of where you are, when you're looking to create this new mash bill, you know, the first rye created in Scotland in over a hundred years, how did you develop that mash bill? Yeah. So that's, so, is, so is it exactly what you say? So when you're looking back to look forward and we're looking at the green, so we're looking at, I mean, we've been producing single malt for, 10 years now and we haven't released anything because we want we're only going to release it when it's ready but when we're looking back and we're looking at all the elements of producing the single malt so we're looking at different barley varieties and how you do that and how best to make that work and all the other aspects we can come to later yeast and other elements we're looking at okay farm-based distilleries what did they do and we're reading and looking at what we're growing and then you know rye rye is a sore thumb sitting out there we used to grow rye in the farm um it's obviously at the same time you know rye start to do much better in in the us and the northeast of america there's you know it's a lot of rye grown in in europe a lot into bread and scandinavia and so we're looking at the crops and we're going we've got to do a rye because rye you know went into scotch whiskey and therefore we couldn't believe that no one had actually done it before us. Uh, I think we started realizing why once we started doing it. Um, and we thought we've actually got a, we're ethos as farm-based distillery. Let's go at the rye. So we started growing our rye. The first rye we grew, we grew spring rye. Now we're in the East Coast, which is, I kind of explained earlier, one of the driest places in Scotland. We'll never grow spring rye again because... <laughs> The challenge of spring rye is once you get into slightly more winter months, if it's too wet, rye is too hard. It gets stuck in the combine. It gets stuck everywhere. It turns into the equivalent of a porridge. So we created this fantastic spring rye, but only once because the learning experience was actually it was, it was virtually too hard to grow. So we now go back and do winter rye. But I think um, our, our philosophy was, let's try the rye. So we knew we can grow, grow it. And then it was a case of, okay, let's distill it now. So how do we distill it? And uh, Kirsty and Christian, our, our, our distillers, had done a lot of research in this, looked at the way you can actually distill. And then it was a case of once you start distilling and, and getting the flavor profiles out of the the, the grains because our, our, our rye was very much about about the grain how to show the different rye grain and then you need malted barley 
So a, a, a rye can never be 100% rye because you're not allowed to use, to, to be a Scotch whisky, you can't use an enzyme. So it's got to be a natural enzyme. So you've always got in a Scotch rye whiskey, you've always got an element of malted barley because that creates the enzyme. So we then started looking at the profile of um, rye and we started off when we did, we were like, I think at 52, 54% rye with a with an amount of wheat because wheat adds some really nice elements. I think Papi Van Winkle use a, 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 a similar take on that but also and then an element of uh malted barley and we played around and, and the thing about development of of uh scotch whiskey like this is there's no one solution so people will like different scotches they like different uh, mash bills so we've played around with the mash bills we've looked at different varieties and our latest release is 60 percent rye 25 percent malted barley that's up significantly and um the remainder being wheat so this is the, so our, our 1794 that's the kind of mash bill that goes into that and the reason it's that is we do an awful lot of testing in fact my job that the found that i've given myself really is chief taster not that i'm particularly good at tasting i just enjoy the job so um we found that <laughs> yeah it's not a bad job we found that uh um by the varieties we're growing, that that was the perfect mash bill for us. And when you're making rye, there's lots of challenges of making rye. It's harder to make than than a single malt. There's elements of of, of you know frothing and and challenges. And I think because it hadn't been done for so long, we were we're absolute pioneers in this. So we we almost learned as we're going along, and 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 we're definitely there. And now have you know the the formula and the method of creating a rye, you know, absolutely to tea. So putting a pin in that one because I'm going to come back to that for a sec in a couple of minutes, which is yeah. I want to go back to the very beginning, and this was the idea for RPK coming around, which was early, you know. 2012-2013 a night in new york city with your brothers yeah um so my first question is do you remember where in new york city it was and, and no i don't and, and that kind of probably when i tell you the story will it will become more clear i i have no idea we'd been i think my brother there was a, a bar called the highlands but we had we it was we'd done two or three bars and it was a very late day and long night sorry that was <laughs> sorry yeah so there i think there was a bar at highlands i don't think it exists anymore and uh and and we're certainly in that bar but there was a couple of others and and so i think the vast majority of the of the idea came in the highlands bar gotcha so the i'm also i'm i'm um personally invested in this because being based in new york city i always want to know which bar you're at uh yeah. but when you're that night and maybe the next couple of days i've heard you say and, and your brother say that you basically had a business plan by the end of that night yeah and so so uh, going slightly back the background is um we all were born and brought well born in our growth brought up in the family farm and and therefore we're very much uh, farmers' sons, but we all kind of went our different ways. So I was uh, one of the first ever 
people in our family to go to university. So I went to Aberdeen University. And the, the reason for that is farmers and farmers' sons just tended to go and work on the land. But I went off to Aberdeen University and randomly studied politics, philosophy, and economics. And uh, I say randomly because I never studied any of them before I'd gone to university. But I think I must have read it somewhere that was a good thing to do. So I, I went off to Aberdeen University, studied that, was enjoying life as a university student that much that I did a postgraduate in accountancy because it was one of the only account it was only one of the only postgraduates left so I kind of stumbled into accountancy um I trained with KPMG in Dundee bored people to death as an accountant then luckily as soon as I qualified I went on international secondment I was um I decided my language skills were that poor that uh, I wanted to go to an English-speaking country. Australia at that stage was out because it had gone to a downturn. Um, uh, the US would have been a natural place for me to go to, but um, and no one take offence at this, please, but I was told definitely don't go to the US. And the reason was because they said, don't go there because you're only going for two years, right? You've got to work far too hard and you get zero holidays right? Vacation. So I thought, well, I don't fancy that, right? So that was off the list. And and then about a week later, I get a call from uh, London. It was KPMG's International Secondment Office was in London. And they said, we're starting a new office in the Turks and Caicos Islands. And I went, where? And they said, Southern Bahamas. I went, that's me. I can just tell that's me. So I went off to the Southern Bahamas, uh, to Turks and Caicos Islands, and helped set up the office there and ended up staying there for four and a half years. But then I came back to the family farm at the same time. One of my brothers had worked in the drinks industry, worked for, I think his first ever job was under Richard Patterson at White and Mackay, but he'd been involved in the drinks industry. So he knew he knew the drinks industry. My other brother, David, was uh, was based in New York at the time. He's moved out to Connecticut. So he did a law degree, but also was in marketing. And therefore, we had three people that had all been at corporate, done different things in their life. And, you know, um, meeting in a, a bar in, in New York, and I'm sure it actually was the Highlands, which doesn't exist anymore. And we were talking about what we wanted to do. And then we and we all have a passion for whiskey and we thought why don't we build a distillery and it's like oh, that's a great idea right and uh and the more the night went on obviously the, the the better the idea became but we did have knowledge of the whiskey industry i had a financial background um and we had an absolute passion and uh, we kind of talked through it and by the end of the night we thought it was the best idea ever but i suppose it was the next few days with sore heads we did actually look at it and go actually the business plan makes sense. We're going to try and go back and do farm-based sustainable distillery. We've got the farm. We actually exist in uh, buildings. And the plan kind of came together after that. And that set us on the journey of where we are now. And, you know, it's been an absolutely fantastic journey. Like any business, there's always challenges. But this is easily the best industry I've been involved in. Based upon your, your family's history in growing the crops already on that farm, did you guys know from the beginning that you were also going to make a rye? Uh, no, we didn't. So at the very start, we were all about um, creating a single malt and, and, and still our, the aim was to create the best single malt in the world, single malt scotch. That's still our aim, right? Whether we get there, but our, so 
and and the reason I say that is because we don't compromise on um anything so we have really long fermentation you know really narrow cut we we buy the best casks we we do the heritage varieties so cost doesn't is not the element it is about trying to produce the best best distiller and that's always been our aim and that's why we also haven't released it because you know we believe it's got to get a certain age before you release you know a single malt that's of real quality um I mean, you know, young stuff is interesting, but this this was our certainly our business philosophy, and I and I think to get there, we then re looked at the business model, and and in many ways that's why we always produce our, our vodka and our gin as well, farm based anything on the farm. You're creating potentially waste products that gave us the cash flow. So creating our own vodkas seven days and the gin is 10 days. So that gave us an initial input into, you know, cash flow to sustain our business and allow us to lay down our single malt. And it was actually when we are doing this, we're then looking at, you know, we are innovative and experimental. It's like, what can we produce? And it's like rye, we're growing rye. So the ones we looked at were rye and oats. So they were because they were the natural ones that would have been produced in farm-based distilleries and wheat as well, but farm-based distilleries. And therefore, that's where that, but that we were probably about a year in before. I think because going from zero to think how on earth do we build this distillery and we built it kind of ourselves with our farm labor. How do we actually do this? We kind of kept any other ideas out, but it was, it was roughly, I would say, yeah, about six, six to nine months in, we decided we're going to do the greens as well. So with that as well, uh, when you were on the family business podcast, uh, just a few years ago, um, you said something that stood out to me and that factors into this, which is that, you know, everyone has their own story and way of distilling. And that's not necessarily a new thing that I've heard, but it is a theme that I've been hearing more and more and more that there is still plenty of room in the sandbox for newer distilleries and producers as Basically, as long as you have your own story and your own differentiators. Um, now, in that beginning phase, let's say the first year. So between that night at the Highlander and uh, the by the time we figured out, okay, we want to do a rye, did you already see the market gap into which you could fit? Yeah. Yeah, I would say uh, as a business, we uh, I think we saw the market gap very early on and the market gap uh was not just about farm-based distillery and, and and going back to the way you know things had be done with heritage varieties and 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 terroir so producing terroir based spirits because generally the large-scale distillers who do an absolute fantastic job their goal is to produce a consistent spirit so if you're drinking Glenfiddich or or Balvenie or or Glenlivet, they try and get the same year consistent every. So you're drinking the same, basically flavor profile every year. Now that is amazing. They can do that, and my, my view is amazing. They create that consistency. Our philosophy is no, we're terroir based. The environment's different. The weather's different. Everything is different. We're like a wine. So every when we produce our spirits. Every year they will be different because they are based on 
whether it's the variety or the, the settings or the heat in the distillery. And, and therefore, we like that way because it encompasses our natural environment. And also, you know, people can have the argument that they prefer the 2015 or they prefer the 2016, just like a wine. You know, people have different taste profiles and prefer different things and we'll get certain vintages. And we love that way of doing almost like it's a natural way of and our a more natural way for us in making whiskey and just say, this is the year, this is what we produced, you know, and 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 also our distillery has always been very manual. So we, you know, we tweak here, we tweak there. So even if the conditions were absolutely the same, which they won't be, then our distillers potentially will alter it, you know, for whatever reason. Um, and therefore that that is a fundamental part of of our business and we thought people are like that and it really it wasn't being done you know at that stage and then the second thing that was probably the main thing was that we also realized that there there's a gap in the market for older whiskies so you look at the 18 year olds now the 21 year olds there, there is not that much of it around because what's happened is scotch whiskey has um become increasingly popular scotland even though there's a lot of new distilleries is not a big country, you know, and therefore the chief executives rightly of their, their companies are responsible to their shareholders and they want profits now. And to get profits now, you sell probably too much spirit and you maybe don't have enough that's been laid down at that 18 or 21 or 25 years. And that's why a lot of these spirits are, are so expensive because they're hard to get. So our business model was lay down and only release a single malt when it's really we think it's absolute ready and we're kind of aiming at about 18 years but it was then also to create um terroir based different spirits that is encompass what we're all about and and therefore by doing that we really will create when you drink an arbiki or you drink a the highland rye you're drinking a spirit that is very much to this distillery and uh, we'll touch upon that 18-year-old single malt later on because um, I know you're using the Macallan 18 as an ex as an inspiration, and that is my favorite expression from Macallan. So, uh, but just closing up with with the market gap for over the last now 10 years, nine, 10 years since then, how has the uh, the market gap changed and evolved for you as you not only over time, but as you've developed these new products, as you're implementing these sustainable practices, is the market gap still out there? Yeah, so so that's a that's a really good question. When we first did it, um, we weren't quite sure it was going to work. So when we've done releases, we've had actually very little stock. So some of our first uh, releases that were finished in an Armagnac cask, finished in a Pedro Jimenez cask, and um, finished in a rum cask. And each year, as we've gone up, we've done a small amount, roughly 1,300 bottles or so, and just demonstrating the rye and a special finish. At the same time, our standard 1794s not had any finish. It's always just been about the grains. So you're tasting the grains in a virgin oak. So that was what we started doing. So when we we started going into the market, we'd actually produce very little to start with because we weren't 100% sure it was going to work. We've since ramped up production. And bear in mind, when I talk about ramping up production, we're not a Glenfiddich or a, a Glenliver or a McAllen, right? We're not 20 
million litres, we're 250,000 litres, which is our kind of maximum and the kind of where we want to be. So we're always going to be small and very bespoke as, as we started uh, ramping that up and then it allows us to release a bit more rye onto the market. Now, when we started doing this, uh, there was people saying, oh, you can't do a rye scotch. It's never been why you're doing a rye scotch. So was, there was a lot of elements that that challenged us saying, you shouldn't be doing this. But we said, no, absolutely, we should, because it's the way that scotch whiskey used to be made. In fact, so much so that the, um, I think I can tell uh, the story now that the Scottish Whiskey Association tried to stop us. Um, we're now members, so uh, we'll definitely be challenging. And, and they're, they're, you know, they do a fantastic job for. I've got the, the 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 whiskey industry because they keep the standards really high. So we went through the process and showed them that no, actually, rye scotch had had been done. And but since then, we've had Inch Darney. So Inch Darney have released a rye whiskey. So they're based in Fife and, and they they are producing quite a lot of rye whiskey. So they've come onto the market in Brookladdy. So Brookladdy, um, they have produced a rye whiskey as well. So now we're not the only rye Scotch whiskey in the world. There are two others, but we've certainly set out um a new category. Um it, we we find it incredibly interesting category. It allows you to taste the grains fantastically well. And I think now at the last count, there is eight other Scotch whiskey making distilleries making rye whiskey. So you're going to see, I think, in the next coming years, a lot more rye Scotch enter the market, which you know we think is a good thing. And it kind of we kind of sit back and say, you know, give ourselves a little tick because you know a tiny little distillery challenged the market, and now it's becoming more of the norm. So, and and I think for us, it's going to be really good because we're absolutely being the pioneers of this um we were berry brothers in london had us down down as one of the pioneer distilleries in the world and we just did something recently with them so you know it's 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 good when something comes to fruition so i would say to the audience you're suddenly going to see you know a lot more rye scotch in the market and that's that's going to be interesting because the flavor the flavors that that come out of it is you know it's it it suits different people's uh, taste profiles and to your point the uh to one of your points the scotch whiskey association is not always the most um welcoming of new styles let's say uh i and also it's worth noting i mean not every new style that comes along historical or brand new is accepted i mean we've had um for example compass box on the podcast earlier early in last year i should say now and we know they had a lot of trouble getting a couple of their products approved to be called Scotch whiskey. <clears throat> so to hear that the SWA was willing to once presented with the with the evidence and with the historical proof that no, this was this was a thing that they were willing to include it still with the high standards they expect, but willing to include it is kind of a a uh, let's call that in the win column for sure, both for for you as a company but also for the consumer who's looking for something a little different um, that could still be called scotch. And with, uh, as you're saying with, you know, over half a dozen scotches, uh, sorry, half a dozen rise now potentially coming from Scotland up to eight. Is it, are you um, kind of bouncing off of the rise in rye products from America as well, where we're seeing 
huge rye revival. I, I think it's interesting because we've done a couple of taste tests and and with the with the other Scotch ryes and and it's amazing within the the the, the rye Scotch category how each bottle that you'll taste it is is different. Now there's no question in my mind as well that rye Scotch is significantly different from uh, American Scotch, American American rye, and also Canadian rye, and actually some of the uh, European ones. So there's definitely, you know, you get the the rye Scotch taste that you know you can absolutely tell it from other ryes around the world, which I think is great. It, it doesn't necessarily, you know, it's not absolutely important, but I th- I think it's good that it just kind of demonstrates the way we make it creates a slightly different uh, flavor profile. So I think I think that's really interesting. And just jumping back to the uh, to the mash bill that you're talking about earlier, sixty percent rye, twenty five percent malted barley, fifteen uh, percent wheat. I want to just clarify because I, I think I heard something before and I wasn't sure about it. But um, obviously, the flavor is going to be slightly different from year to year. <clears throat> Sorry, with the vintages, if you will, from year to year. But will the mash bill itself remain static? That's a very good question. That's one that I can't answer because I kind of get told. It's one of the things <laughs> that we've got. We've got a. I know my limitations, and one is um, I'm not a distiller. So our distilling team will. I think we we're at the moment we're quite consistent on this mash bill. But there is no question that if for whatever reason the varieties or the season. Um, means that that mash bill changes slightly they will change it and I, I'll, they'll have 100 percent backing because when we're doing this it's 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 about trying to produce and extract the maximum flavor and the best flavor profile of the whiskey so we've been quite i think for the past nine months we've been in this kind of mash bill but that does not mean the future it won't be tweaked here or there but i think within that kind of boundaries you know, it might go up a few percent, down a few percent, but it'll be roughly that because that we've kind of we've, the elements of the grains seem to you, you can taste the different elements best. I think in that. And I'll be honest that that's you're doing so many uh, interesting and noteworthy things at Arbiki. I think that might be the one that stood out to me as the most potentially um, innovative from a product standpoint was this idea that the the mash bill can change slightly. Because if you're looking at it from from especially either an American audience or even a Scot- Scotch single malt audience, where it's 100% barley for the Scotch or American, it you know we're obsessed with mash bills and consistency from year to year, really with the exception of single barrels where we're looking for something out of the ordinary. To have the same product, the same Scottish rye from Arpeke that is changing from year to year, not only because of whatever the environmental and climatic conditions might be, but also because a couple of percentage points difference could make a different flavor and achieve what you want to uh, from a collector standpoint, but also a, a vertical tasting standpoint. That could be an incredibly fun thing to explore to say, oh, well, this year was 62% rye or 59% rye. Do you taste the difference? And how do you taste it? And I think um, I don't know those kinds of things excite me the most. I know it's extremely nerdy of me in the in the whiskey world, yeah. but it's I don't know, I find that particularly particularly interesting. 
Um, yeah, no, I, I, I would echo that. And actually, when, when we brought out the uh, initial rise, you'll see the 1794, the batch 2021, 2000, uh, 2020, 2021. We actually called this one batch 22. And the, they're all different. And there's some of the reasons for that is one was done at, you know, riot uh, 54%, 53. This is up to 60 now. And therefore, these small tweaks... It's amazing actually how much of a difference they can make. And I think, you know, I, th I think that's amongst all the other elements of the different grains and the different profile of that, that is certainly an element that that still can significantly change the, the, the profile. And with that, I think that's a perfect segue into talking about your distilling team, which is, as you said, Christy and Christian, uh, both have degrees from Harriet Watt, one of the epicenters of learning brewing and distilling. Uh, anywhere in the world, not just in Scotland. So starting off from uh, just their, their first interaction, how did you find them or get connected with them? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's quite an interesting story. So when when we were looking to build post-bar, post post-hangover, looking to build the uh, distillery, we thought, okay, we've got all these elements. We know farming inside out. We've got the buildings. We've got the financial model. We've we kind of had all the setup. The one thing that's obviously quite importantly we're missing was a distiller, a distiller. We needed to get a distiller. So how do we get a distiller? So we decided that we would try and find the best uh, distiller out there. And and uh, what we did was we approached someone um, uh, who had worked, actually I'll say it, we approached a person called Alan Barclay, who was ex Diageo and looked after their 47 distilleries at whatever one stage, but been in the industry all his time. He was then visiting professor at Harriet Watt University. We knew him. And actually, when we back one step, when we were building the distillery, we actually had, and I've got to credit people with a massive amount of help from uh, the distilling industry, whether they were retired or they were semi-retired or even working for other distillers, but loved our whole concept and what we were doing. They helped us massively. And one of these people was uh, Alan Barclay. And we actually said to him, look, Alan, um, do you know any really outstanding distillers distillers out there? Or this is what we're trying to do. And he said, you know, unquestionably, Kirsty Black. She, you know, she she's at Harriet Watt. She's, you know, she's an outstanding talent. And actually at that stage, even at university, when she'd gone back to Harriet Watt doing, doing her degree, she produced a, a gin called Pickering's Gin in Edinburgh. So there's a gin called, so even when she was a student, she'd already produced a gin. They always tell us it's the first gin she's ever produced, and we just remind them she was just learning at that stage. So now she's uh, she's fully qualified. She can produce a proper one. But, yeah, so we were lucky that we got her. And at the same time, Kristen is followed and his background is wine so he's originally from venezuela chile he spent time in uh california he spent time in australia he really looks after a cast program but they they work incredibly well now i think the importance of uh both of them was they're absolutely on the same page from the very start of what we're trying to do here so it was about you know producing the best we can, being innovative, being sustainable, you know, all these elements. And and we meet all the time and go through and challenge each other. And so we've got a, a very challenging environment in a good way. 
why are we doing this? Can we do it better? But also a really innovative, uh, you know, distiller. So we always try and challenge the norm. Why are we doing this? Is is there a better way of doing it? A lot of times there's not because there's a reason you do certain things because you know that's the best way of doing it. But we always try and look and challenge. And and we were of all the things. I think in any business, anyone has a business, you know, you can do the right things, but you need a bit of luck. And our luck was getting, you know, two absolute world-class distillers and and with the same vision that we had. So, that yeah, that's an absolute vital element to what we're doing. And Christy in particular, as you were saying, she has a PhD focus on the extraction of alcohol from legumes. She's continued publishing papers since being at, at since, uh, getting her degree and since being at RPE, following up on the dissertation, I, I'm looking forward to reading some of them because they really piqued my interest. I'm, I'm interested in the scientific and chemical side of this as well. Right. Uh, to your, well, I guess, I guess that question is kind of answered as she was already producing a gym, but I was going to ask if, you know, her plan was always to go into distilling in some capacity. Yeah, I think, I think, and that, that's where we had the, the, the massive advantage and one of the reasons we've got it. And, and, you know, and I'm sure there's a, a lot of people that are envious of, of the quality of distillers we've got. I think what got her, and I, I'm just, I'm speaking from my point of view, she might tell you something completely different, right? Uh, it wasn't the money, I can tell you that much. It was, I think the reason we got her was, we and and she was instrumental with me in building the distillery from scratch. So we basically put together it, together the elements with the the, the farm labourers and people who are blacksmiths and built it ourselves. As from the very start, we had this vision of starting a new distillery and working our way all the way through to producing the best single malt and the best spirits we possibly could. And and I think that to to manage to do that. There's very few people, you know, in Scotland that one has ever done that or two will ever have the opportunity to do that. And I think, you know, we gave her the opportunity and hopefully the tools to do that as well. So, as you said, uh, you got Christy on and you were able to build the distillery with her. So what is that still set up? Well, not even the still setup. What does the, the setup look like from from mashing distills to warehousing? Yeah, good point. So, so everything is on the farm, um, and the warehousing's on the farm. So we, we try and do everything. The, the one thing we don't do at the moment is we don't have our own maltings. Um, hopefully, in the future, in the near future, we will have, which will just close that loop. The reason we didn't do maltings and uh, originally was one because of the cost, but two also ability. So if we were doing everything right and couldn't produce the proper malt that would have been a good start. So at the moment, we actually use our tractor and trailer and drive it seven and a half miles to Burt's Malt, which is in Montrose. They malt our specification and we drive it back. So it's it's not the biggest footprint in the world, but somewhere down the line that we will we will build our own maltings to close that loop. So our, our setup is um, we use Carl Still. So Carl's a company based in Germany. The reason, so most of the stills in Scotland is a company called Forsyth. And at the time we approached Forsyth, who, who are a brilliant company, um, it was going to be two years before they can do our stills. And they were also doing quite a lot of work in the North Sea fabrication. So we, we thought we need to get up and running quicker than that. And Carl, who had done a lot uh, in Germany, but never done a Scotch whiskey. They they work very very closely in designing 
our stills and our setup. And and because we're also producing vodka, so we've got a stripping column as well, and uh, and all our fermenters. Uh, they were a good partner to actually do that combination of of different spirits, but also bespoke Scotch uh, whiskey still. So we've got um, our wash still, our spirit still, and we've got a a, a separate gin still. We've got a a, a forty two plate uh, stripping column column still, and then it's our our modern. I mean, we've got uh, modern fermenters and. It's interesting to hear you use um, Carl Stills because that, you know, for for audience members, uh, Forsyth is to Scotland as Vendome is to America. It's like the go-to place for stills, uh, but they also, in many ways, also parallel the fact that um, Vendome has a two to three year waiting period, even now, yeah. to get stills made. Uh, so Carl Stills are popping up more and more, and um, the thing that I hear most about them from from people who use them is that they're incredibly versatile and they're customizable so you know if you want to yeah i guess i'll just put it that way they're they're very customizable so you can have one or two stills that can make six or seven different spirits just based on how you close the plates or how high you want to go in that column like if you don't want to use all 42 plates if you want to go lower or change the perforations uh and so the the um sorry my questions are just going right out of my head today well on that, i'll tell you on on that so yeah. your, your point there about yeah so one of the reasons one that we utilized them was because they hadn't done scotch whiskey still so they they made them very bespoke to us right so the actual the the pot stills very bespoke they're absolute to our design everything and and they work so closely the column still with the the the, the plates highly customizable with the ability we've got to change the way we make spirits is it's unending, actually. It's almost like, you know, so we could change the way we make spirits 365 days a year. So the, the advantage of that is it allows you complete flexibility and to do what you're doing. There are supposed to slight disadvantages. You really need to know what you're doing, right? Because if you get carried away, you know, the, the ultimate aim of doing that is to create great spirits. So I, I think, yeah, they, they were, you know, they, they were excellent with us. And it, our setup gives us, unbelievable flexibility but uh, you know taking nothing away from for size because they're a brilliant company as well and the just before we get into the uh the products themselves which are quite exciting uh the last other question i had was you're working with um scottish universities and and institutes of higher learning such as the hutton institute uh, on what you're doing on the farm and, and distillation. I'm curious to just know a little bit more about what kind of collaborative work you're doing with them. Yeah, so um, the one thing about uh, Kirsty is she's plant-based scientist. So she anything we do is uh, has got to be scientific-based. Uh, so there's no random marketing claims from us. And that's why we, we are, tr- I mean, don't get me wrong, we're not 100% perfect, but we try and absolutely make sure that anything that's said is backed up by science and probably instead of a, a marketing claim. So because of our scientific background uh, and she worked uh, extensively with 
uh, Aberty University and four other universities around the world in creating the Nadar uh, gin and vodka, which is pea-based spirits, legume-based. Um, Nadar, because that is Gaelic for nature. And and the, the thing we touched on upon before is brilliant for soil rotation, but also because peas carbon capture, it becomes climate positive. So it's minus 1.54 kg CO2 per bottle. In fact, it's better than that now, but that's proved by life cycle analysis and by the university uh, people working that out. So that kind of set her on the road and she got her PhD in extraction of uh, alcohol from peas and legumes, first person ever to do that. So she's absolutely, she probably doesn't get enough credit for the Nadar spirits because it's, it's absolute genius. And it's not just genius, but it allows for significant development people producing spirits in a better more caring way and and I think a point that we should raise on this is we didn't IP it we didn't take any intellectual property or anything out it's open source it's basically anyone we want to encourage people out there to actually utilize the research that Kirsty and our colleagues at university have done to actually use this and create spirits and and so we're actually encouraging this instead of trying to make money because it's way more important than us so that kind of set her on the path and because she's now very very round and gets asked to speak around the world and and her distilling techniques and you know whether it's single malt or rye or or the nadar spirits so her technical ability is absolutely fantastic and that results her working with people such as the Hutton Institute. So the Hutton Institute is a centre of learning. In particular, they've got a barley hub, so they do an awful lot of stuff with the developments of different varieties of barley um, and soil content and really everything to do with farming. So we work closely in a number of projects with them. One was called intercropping, where we have undersown barley with peas. So what that does is naturally carbon fixes, takes natural nitrogen out of the soil and then allows the barley to utilize that um, nitrogen instead of using artificial fertilizer. So that's an ongoing three-year project. It's got a long way to go yet, but it's that's one of the projects we've been working on. We work on a net zero potato with another unit and that's about how you can reduce um, your carbon footprint of farming. Um, and there's, there's another one of capturing carbon uh, dioxide out of the distillery, turning it into um, uh, CO2 for either concrete or into making ice. So we're always looking, I think she's got six or seven ongoing projects at the moment um, around this. So we're definitely, even though we're very small, uh, an innovation hub in many ways. We've, we're doing the green hydrogen, so we're going to be the first distillery in the world that has green hydrogen. So all these, it's one of the advantages of, of doing what we're doing and working with universities and being very open. So we have numerous distillers that come and, and look and see what we're doing. You know, we're an open book to 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 working with people and, and working for the better of distilling and the better of the environment. And, and that actually then, you know, working with great people around the world allows us to produce some really interesting stuff. Absolutely. And that's a great segue into, into the third section, which is about the products. And uh, the ones that I've tried have all been fantastic. So just for the audience sake, I've gotten to try the Nadar Vodka, 
the Highland Rye 1794, but also the Arbiki, uh Strawberry Vodka. And the Strawberry Vodka was the first product I tried. Now, if you've listened to pretty much any other episode of this podcast, listeners, you'll know I love Travel Bar in Brooklyn. And um, Mike is not much of a vodka person. Uh, neither am I, really. I don't have anything particularly against it. It's just not usually that interesting because vodka is normally just stripped for flavor and it's just alcohol. So there's one vodka that he holds behind the behind the bar uh, that isn't for well drinks, and that is the RBK Strawberry Vodka. And he tried me on it one time, and I loved it so much that I brought friends multiple times since then to Travel Bar to try it. Because uh, obviously, it's it's not an expensive dram. It's maybe a little more than than a typical vodka, but it's for good reason. And for me, just starting with the strawberry as we go through these, my uh, takeaway from it is it it almost drank more like kind of a strawberry liqueur, a little lighter than a fortified wine, but more, much more flavorful, much more mouthfeel than you'd expect with a typical vodka. Um, and to put it bluntly in the way that I think about vodka sometimes, uh, <clears throat> it made it worth the drink because you were getting something other than just alcohol. So on, um, I'm curious to just ask a little bit about that. <clears throat> Sorry. Sure. So, uh, so uh, yeah, just ask a little bit about that because in uh, on in one interview in 2021, you said that the, the strawberry vodka took a while to get right. It wasn't just about adding strawberry flavor; it was really using real strawberries. So, I'll throw it to you. Yeah, it was it was a two year project to make strawberry vodka. So, uh, one of the things when we, when we did the distillery is. Um, I alluded to before, we, we produce vodka and gin, and that was a way of utilizing farm waste. So we produce a potato vodka, because we grow 6,000 tons of potatoes on the farm. So it allows an outlet for any kind of waste potato. We do a wheat vodka, which is more like a gray goose. And then we did the Nadar, which is the pea base. Now, I agree with most vodkas are just gray neutral spirit. We try to show the difference of actually making a vodka with taste right? Which does some people drink and say, oh, what's that? You know, it's, it's actually got some flavor profile. And we had that a bit with the potato vodka to start with. And, and in particular, because everyone says, oh, is, is vodka not made from potatoes? But less than 5% of the world's vodka is now made from potatoes, mainly because it's harder, more expensive to do. So um, we kind of, and, and actually when we're making the importance of making things like vodkas, Vodka. We use three different varieties of potatoes, Kultra, Maris Piper, and King Edward. Now, we can tell the difference at 96% between the potatoes. So, for instance, Kultra has a slightly more earthy feel. So, this talk about absolute neutral, if, if, if you're analysing taste and flavour and profile, we were, with a vodka, which is a you know, neutral spirit, we could actually taste. So, we knew immediately in terms of the heritage varieties that, yes, barley does have different tastes and that pushed us on because if we can tell in vodka and potatoes, you can tell in barley 100%. So on in the, the single malt. So we created these three vodkas and they're all slightly different. But when we're doing that, we also, my my cousin now, we grow everything on the farm apart from our strawberries because my cousin is just across the road, the other side of the road. He produces strawberries in a major way. So we took his strawberries 
his waste strawberries and then produce that into creating a strawberry-based vodka. And most vodkas are just some chemical element added to create a, a flavoured vodka. And, you know, it's it's not my thing. You know, if it was your thing, great, but it's not my thing. So we it's wanted not to my produce thing either, don't worry. <laughs> no, an, an absolute natural vodka. So to do that, strawberries have quite a lot of water content. So it took Kirsty approximately two years to develop the strawberry flavoured uh, vodka. And one of the challenges there was um, she managed to do it, but then it would lose its smell or its taste over time. So that's why actually our our, our vodka is 50% ABV, so 100% proof. It's got to be a certain level of alcohol to retain the smell, the sort of strawberry jam smell. And then there was other elements of binding the 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 strawberry the strawberry elements into the vodka and keeping all that. So it is a bit of a work of art. The the other thing is that um we only produce, I don't know, 5,000 bottles a year maximum. It depends on my cousin's uh, strawberry crop. So it's just, it could be 4,000. So it's, 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 it will never be, whatever he's got waste strawberries, then that's what we produce. And we'll never produce any more. So I, I think that's actually the ethos of that and the way of utilizing a kind of waste product into such an interesting vodka. Is, you know, it's a great story. And, and, is, and I love it as well. Like, like you said, I, I, I don't have a vodka. No, it's not true. I have one vodka in this, but it, the only reason I use it is for cooking. I can make a vodka sauce or something like that. I just don't drink it. It's, uh, but that, like, I want to go out and get a bottle of this because it's that good and it's that interesting. Uh, plus, I just like strawberries. Um, and you're not going to get a natural flavor that gives you gummy bear vodka or whipped cream vodka. <laughs> like, no, no, no. Um, so earlier, uh, jumping to another product, uh, Kirsty's gin. So before you said it took about uh takes about 10 days to make it. Uh now I I want to maybe clarify on this because I'd heard on a, a different or read on a different interview that starting it really takes like kind of a year to make in total in terms of harvesting and all that, starting harvest in April and then eventually distilling in January. So what goes into creating that that spirit? Yeah, so, so that's true. So actually, it's, you know, the actual distillation process is about 10 days. Um, but actually, our whole our whole ethos of the distillery is we only utilize things that are grown on the farm. So when we, Kirsty was making her first gin, it was about, okay, what is being grown on the farm? And so the base spirit, and, and most gins, they buy in the grain neutral spirit. So you, 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 there's producers somewhere that will produce massive bulk industrial process. They buy that in and then you add your botanicals and make your gin. We Everything we do, so we start by making the base spirit, the vodka. And that's why ours is immediately different. So we control the vodka process as well. So to make Kirsty's, it was about utilizing our potato-based spirit. Um, therefore, it's naturally gluten-free as well, is that we utilize that. And then we try to produce a relatively... A classical gin. So there's elements, there's a uh, blayberries, and blayberries is a Scottish blueberry. So so that we grow that. Uh, we've got tunnels, we grow that in the Caroline thistle, which is um slight uh it's it's a little uh plant that grows roughly between us and the sea and on the land. And then kelp, we use kelp. So where we are, we look out into Luden Bay, which is uh, the North Sea. And actually, our distiller Christian, 
who's the the guy from uh, South America, Chile, free dives. So actually free dives in Lunan Bay and picks up the kelp, which we drive, and that gives salty elements to the botanicals for making kirsties. And he also surfs. And if anyone's been to Scotland and come across the North Sea, it's um, you sometimes see polar bears swimming past on summer vacation, you know, so that's how cold it is. So it's um, he's very brave. Um, but so our, our botanicals that go into Kirsties are all very natural to us. And then you've also got, generally in gins, you've got three or four base botanicals that go into every gin there is. So all of that is grown in our tunnels on the farm. And, and even in Scotland, we, we do a chilli vodka as well, and we grow our own chilies habaneros and then smoke them in a cask to create that chipotle flavor so you know if, if you're buying any of our products it must be made on the farm and that's why we'll never do a, you know a tequila or a rum because we we can't grow these elements yeah that's fair I'm, i mean I, I to be honest I, I wouldn't taste tequila anyway but a rum i would definitely taste um but the i i was gonna ask the juniper in particular because if, if it's a gin it's got to have juniper that's the one required ingredient that you got to have in there uh and You've planted over five thousand juniper trees on the property. Um, yeah, so, yeah, does it handle the? I guess it handles the environment quite well. So, so juniper is interesting because juniper used to be all over Scotland, and then it got a certain disease, and it kind of wiped her out. So, Scottish juniper became very, very rare, and uh, and 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 we took it upon ourselves. You know, let's start planting juniper because juniper for for Scottish-based gin is absolutely the story. And then, this is the entrepreneurial part of me, I found out that you plant juniper, it likes the bad soil areas, and, and we're quite lucky, we don't have that many bad soil areas, so any bad soil area, I started planting juniper. And then it was, I, I kind of started running out of uh, areas, and then I thought, well, well, the verge of the roads, that may or may not be mine. I probably shouldn't say this live on air. So along a lot of the verges, we've got juniper as well, right? So really, we started buying about 5,000 plants a year, and we've got extensive uh, juniper. Um, I, I would also, just for clarity as well, but I say we grow everything. We have used non-Scottish juniper as we wait for our juniper visit to mature. So, but, you know, the the elements of, of what we're doing is that will create all our own juniper because we want to be you know that hundred percent everything on the farm. Sure, and I I think that's that's fair. At a certain point, you've got to you know just like a startup company, if you're starting up with brown spirits from day one, you're going to be sourcing it from somewhere because you need to. But um, just knowing again, you have the plan. It's part of your yeah. plan to get there. So there. So now I got I have two more bottles to get. Now that I think about it because I because now I got to try the Curse's gin as well. Right. So, uh, with the so the next one I want to, to talk about was going back to the Nadar vodka, and this is the pea-based carbon uh, negative climate positive. Uh, so you've talked a little bit about it before uh, about it, the negative one point five four kilograms of CO two per bottle. Um, it's also I should note it's a um, you know it doesn't come in any additional packaging or anything like that. So there's no kind of add-on costs of packaging or transportation that goes into CO2 beyond what's necessary just to get it out to the market. Um, so the 
it goes back to that sustainability ethos that's been part of it, that's been woven throughout this interview. As the, let me ask it this way, being sustainable, particularly when you're starting out, when you're um, smaller, when you have the ability to do so more easily, as you said earlier, it's not always economically possible or commercially possible to do everything that uh, you guys are doing at RBG, but it is possible to do some of these. So for me, I mean, I look at it, it's clearly a worthy endeavor. It's something that people should be exploring to the extent possible. And I wish, you know, if more producers would adapt even half of these, we'd be in a pretty good situation. So I guess my question is, a, as a consumer who's tasting these products, particularly the, the Nadar products, which are climate positive is how do these processes affect the final product in both taste and perhaps more importantly in price yeah so in terms of what we do there's and in terms of our ethos and it's like it's a it's trouble with sustainability in many ways is everyone utilizes it now or whatever and there's so many claims out there i just i just always put it back to being kinder you know, kinder, it's about being kinder to your natural environment, kinder to the soils we do, kinder to people, you know, reduce your waste, just things, why wouldn't you want to do those things, you know, so whatever the arguments and, you know, there's people, you know, people might not believe that, you know, that there's those changing climate, well, you don't have to believe that, you've just got to think, why would I want to, why would I try to have less waste, why wouldn't I, you know, try to do things better to the environment so that that's always kind of been our argument so from the very start by utilizing that um there is a and I, i'll come back to the aspect about being a new distillery it's e more easy to be sustainable that's not necessarily the case there's uh, you know there's there's commercial challenges and i think everyone's got to work within their commercial challenge but there's so many different things particularly around the waste you can do the large the multinationals while they have older distilleries they have the cash to do things you know tomorrow they could change it substantially you know it's so it's it's all about your priorities but i also realize they've got shareholders so i think if everyone gets in a journey and does their own little bit it makes the the world a better place in terms of our own products the cost is it's always it's always more by making our own base spirit it costs more our uh, vodka costs four times as much to make as buying in grain neutral spirit that's significant it's significant it's, yeah. yeah so for but actually it, it, so it costs more but it, for us it's worth it for doing the right things for uh, but also the traceability of knowing this is where it came from, this is where it produced, this is the elements you're tasting. So when we produce the, the, the taste, it, it's elements of where we are in Scotland. It's elements of the actual our soil. It's actual the the the, the natural environment. You get elements of that in the the spirit, right? And uh, and I think that's really important for us as well. And I think with spirits to be interesting, you know you should manage to taste that slightly different profile in them because otherwise everything's going to taste the same. Agreed. And as I was tasting the, uh, the Nadar vodka, I was reminded of another podcast guest, which is um, Bali Valain spirits in Ireland. They're making a, a milk gins or way really from the way. Right. And uh, gins can 
gins are actually pretty diverse in how they taste and i enjoy that about gin because it can be yeah. very different from place to place if you really if the producer embraces the sense of place about it um but still that you know having a milk based gin is quite a different experience than a uh just a gray neutral gin and i had the same kind of experience with the nadar vodka where it's like i don't think i've had a pea-based spirit before so and that's to be clear that's pea based spirit before <laughs> so um it it didn't taste neutral it tasted not like peas but um there was something different about it and i guess the i just wanted to appreciate that for the fact that it's, it's a different experience it's a different taste and something that also i'm thinking about and maybe this is a question for uh, some of the regulators is if you were to take a pea-based spirit or a legume-based spirit in general and age it, treat it like you would a whiskey, what category would that fall into? Is it's, I mean, it's usually a vegetable or a starch or some kind. It's definitely not a grain. So what, what would it fall into? And I'm curious what would come of that. Yeah. Uh, but so back also harkening back to something else you said earlier in the interview, which was that you're capturing the CO2 from fermentation and uh, it's being used to, it, well, it's being captured and being reused elsewhere in, in concrete and in other uses. You're also monitoring the water. You're recycling that when possible using photovoltaic panels, hydrogen power. Uh, you know, you've had this in your plan kind of since, since the beginning and to ask the same question as for the other processes, for other distillers that are starting out and that are young and still kind of have the ability to start from scratch, how difficult do you imagine it being for those kinds of producers to adopt some of the practices? Well, I think green hydrogen is different. We, we, we won out of all the Scottish distilleries, we won a, a contest because it was to to build the green hydrogen and, and that's it, it's so innovative that's expensive and that's out with most people's reaching us because it's kind of government funded project but i suppose it came about because they looked upon us as the most sustainable innovative uh, distillery in scotland and that's why we won it so but i think for starting out you know if if your energy source is is, is the major one so you just look at what kind of energy sources you can use that is potentially kinder to the environment and I think there's a lot in the last few years a lot of learning out there about how you can recycle water better how you can retain heat how you can recycle heat how you can utilize so you spent grains going back to feeding cattle and how that can be more circular in, in manner and just actually reduce your waste and we kind of you touched upon it earlier as well there's Packaging. So the the major areas in terms of being sustainable is is farm based and your packaging. And to make the biggest difference is probably not in the distillery. It's these elements, what we term scope three. So packaging, there's an argument, and we're seeing it being asked for more and more of having zero packaging. So some of the big state bars are now saying we don't need packaging. Um, and and therefore, probably the labels are going to change a bit more to impart some information. But I don't think that's a bad thing. It, it the only challenge is gifting, you know, in particular if it's a more expensive item. But I think generally, you think why do you actually need packaging? Most of it's just disposed. You know, you get something in a carton, it's stuck in the bin. So why actually have it? So I think for new distilleries, 
look at the process. There's, there's a lot of information out there now. Is is I think energy is the main challenge you've got, and how you can do that. You know whether that's PV panels or or air source. But there's a lot of data coming out about how you can be much more efficient. An advantage of this is. If you are much more efficient and you take on some of these new technologies, it actually costs you less more to run your distillery. So there are significant advantages of doing it as well. And it's worth noting that I was you're in a place in Scotland where PV cells can work. I mean, I don't know if they would be as useful on Isla or on the West Coast, yeah. but um, but yeah, it's, it's still worth looking into. And I think it. Well, again, I, I hope more will. Yeah, I mean every. Every shed we've got on the farms of PV panels. So even in Scotland, it's it's the light. It generates significant amount of electricity. It actually helps run our coal store for our potatoes. But it's you know it works in Scotland, so it's going to work elsewhere. That's for sure. Exactly, exactly. So to uh, to close out, the last questions uh, I have are about that single malt that's been resting, and um, like I said before, you're using. McAllen 18 is a main inspiration and you're letting it age to ideally 18 years, which, I mean, I've interviewed and talked to a lot of Scottish distillers, a lot of dis distilleries, period. Nobody is waiting to release their single ball until it's 18 years old. So you know, how did, I'll, I'll call it at minimum, a bold approach, let's say. Uh, yeah, I think it's more, I mean, we've always stated 18, but 18 in many ways is about we know it's a kind of an iconic age so you know um we know how good the old McCallans were in particular the the, the 18 year olds and we I touched upon it was that the golden prom was an element of the the barley and that so we've always you know it's it's been quite an iconic 18 year old and and, and obviously a very iconic uh, scotch whiskey so our aim and I, I told Edrington this as well when, when, when I met them, that our aim was to produce a McAllen 18, but better, right? Which they obviously laughed at. But it, <laughs> but it, we're serious. And whether we get there or not, that's our aim, to be the best and, and, and to produce that. And I think our statement was more about being a young distillery. We only want to release our single malt when we think it's absolutely ready and, and absolutely perfect. So, you know, it doesn't mean we might we might still release small amounts in the next few years, right? Because one of the things that lots of other distiller distillers keep telling us, you fool, why are you doing this? You know, it's like kind of thing. But they, you can peak in Scotch whiskey. And we've done a lot of things with different yeasts and everything. So if we get one of our single malts that we suddenly think is absolutely perfect, you know, it can reach a peak and we'll go down. So, But our aim at the moment, certainly still as we're 10 years in, is we're still going for that 18. And it's all about, finding the almost perfect year that we think we're kind of optimum for the taste and flavor profile of our single malt and one of the advantages again of releasing our our rye whiskey is it's definitely matures quicker and younger so i think the peak for rye and, and you know as young as four to about eight is probably optimum for that whereas you know i think the real classic single malt somewhere around the 18 mark is is is, is about its peak can't disagree you know if had a couple of younger single malts that have come out and they are very, very good. It's, but there is something about the additional age that uh, it, it does make a difference. I'm, I'm usually okay with about 10 to 12 starting out as my yeah. uh, good range. But like you said, that 18 is a magical year for, for Scotch single malt. So with that, uh, I will 
close us out. So John, thank you so much for, for coming on talking about RB key. Uh, I have a couple bottles to go out and purchase and, and try them. Cause I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Um, I will be waiting the next eight plus years for when that single malt is ready to try that out. Uh, maybe by then I'll be able to take a trip over to Scotland to, to try it in person. Um, but is there, uh, before we close out, is there anything else you want to tell us about RPQ distillery that I may have missed? No, I, I think um, I think that's covered an awful lot. I mean, obviously we're 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 in America, and you mentioned Winebow earlier, who's our distributor. So we're across most states in the U.S. now, and um, you know it's it's you know it's uh, it's our favorite market. So it's been a pleasure talking through our kind of journey, and and even now we know we're at the very start of it. So in the next few years, we've we've got a lot of even more interesting things if that's possible coming out. So we're always innovative. We're always challenging and trying to do things better. So, you know, th thanks very much for having me on. You know, it's been an absolute pleasure. and I've loved speaking to you, talking to you. Thanks so much. And hang on with me for just a sec after we finish the recording. This has been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. Thank you everyone for listening. Subscribe wherever you can. Follow, leave reviews. And as always, we'll see you next week. Hey folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating and review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps, or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyandmywedderring, that's whiskey with an E, for as little as a dollar a month. Five dollars a month gets you access to bonus content including our soon-to-resume Under the Influencer series, and $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.